Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was spoken by the prophets, might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Good morning. So, um, it's a little bit of an interesting situation that we find ourselves in this week. Um, But I want to start out with a little story. So my favorite, one of my favorite book series, one of my favorite movie series is Lord of the Rings. And in that, there's a scene in which 
Frodo and Sam, two of the main characters, um, are finding themselves kind of feeling a little bit philosophical. Um, So at one point, Sam um, asks Frodo, Mr. Frodo, I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. Um, Now, I I share this uh, for a couple of reasons. One, Jim asked me to preach on the second half of this chapter before he preaches on the first half of the chapter next week. So quite literally, we've fallen into the middle of this tale that's taking place in Matthew 2. Um, But I think more importantly, maybe like Sam and Frodo, you've wondered this about your own life. I know I have. Where's the story going? Is there a tough road ahead? How am I supposed to hang on? Does my story have a happy ending? Is there any purpose or meaning to it at all? Let's review a little bit, because uh, you know, we've had a couple things go on since Will read this, this chapter to us. First half of the chapter, really briefly, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, which is just down the road from the capital, Jerusalem. And uh, the scripture says, wise men, uh, the original word was magi. These guys were astrologers, probably, from the east, maybe modern-day Iran. They come to Jerusalem saying they're looking for the recently born king of the Jews because they want to come and worship him. They come to King Herod, who's actually, even though he's the king over Israel at this point, he's actually not an Israelite. He's an Edomite by birth. Uh, He is the Rome-appointed king of what's modern-day Israel, Palestine, a little bit of Syria, Jordan, thrown in for good measure. And one of Herod's self-proclaimed titles was King of the Jews. So Herod attained and maintained his position of power through extorting as much money as possible through the locals, to pay in taxes to Rome uh, and pocketing a good bit for himself on the side, as well as paying off, intimidating, or murdering anyone who got in his way. So Herod's now about 70 years old, and he is increasingly ruthless and paranoid in his old age about threats to his throne. In fact, he's already killed a favorite wife and one of his sons whom he saw as threats to his power, and not long after this, he will kill another son who gets a little too uppity. Uh, Herod secretly asks the Magi to let him know when they find the child, lying about wanting to worship with them, but in reality wanting to murder this potential rival. So the Magi, they find baby Jesus, they worship him, they give him rich gifts, and they're warned by an angel to avoid Herod and leave by another road. So that's where we jump into our passage today. Uh, Our main idea for this morning, as we look at the second half of the chapter, is that Jesus' early life included great difficulty and sorrow. But his story is the key to unlocking a bigger story of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises to do good to his people, including us. That might seem a little distant. Okay, Jesus, big story. Let's personalize that a little bit more. If you're in Christ, you're not alone in your sorrow. And your sorrow is not the end of the story. Your sorrows are part of a bigger story of how God, through Jesus Christ, keeps his promises to do us good. So let's see how our text does that. Um, Verses 13 to 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So sorrow number one, they are fugitives from Herod. So at this point, Jesus is probably just a few months old. Um, At the most, he's two years old. Joseph is warned in a dream to flee from Egypt from Herod's murderous jealousy for his throne. Uh, And Joseph takes his family and up and goes immediately. Uh, He trusts God's lead. Mary and Joseph, together, they actually accept without complaint being mistreated along with Christ. How in the world do they do that? Um, more on that in just a couple minutes. So we have an angel warning Joseph in a dream that they need to leave, and we have these, these wise men, these magi from the east, bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are both pretty amazing circumstances, right? But aside from that, after that, there's no obvious what we would think of as divine intervention. You know, God could have called legions of angels to strike down Herod and all his thugs uh, and make Bethlehem safe for them, Right? But God provides for them in a really ordinary way. They leave in the middle of the night for Egypt. Um, So Egypt is pretty close by. It's outside of Herod's jurisdiction. And actually at that point, there are a couple cities in Egypt where there were large populations of Jews uh, where they could blend in, they could find community and find work and live there for the long term in safety if they needed. Exciting, interesting little historical tidbit. Maybe might feel a little bit uh, distant from us, though. What does this have to do with you and me? Um, how does this story intersect with our story? Let me give you a couple of intersection points. One, I have a friend, a, a Christian guy. He came to faith in Christ during college who told me that his earliest memory is hiding with his mom under a bridge so that his dad, in a drunken rage, wouldn't find them and beat them. Intersection number two. When my wife was young, her mom couldn't afford new Keds tennis shoes every August. You guys remember Keds? Um, For the start of school. They could only get the generic equivalent. So in order to avoid the shame of being poor, or at least poor compared to the other kids at her school, my wife took the Keds logo off of the one real pair that she had and glued them onto the new generic pair. And she repeated this several years in a row. Intersection number three. Uh, Just down the street at Lake Orienta Elementary School, they have a food distribution program. So every Friday afternoon, they'll send home backpacks full of food to a lot of the kids in the school there. Why? Well, most of these kids, they know Monday through Friday, they can get a, a hot breakfast and a hot lunch for free. But when they go home over the weekend, there's no guarantee. If your story is anything like these, if it has any elements like these in them, Jesus has been there, both in poverty and in fleeing violence. Every battered wife or girlfriend, every child who's had to deal with the consequences of adults' rage, everyone who's known the pain of true hunger that won't end anytime soon, you are not alone. Jesus has been there. And he is weaving the dark thread of your story into something beautiful. But how do we get from that dark thread into that something beautiful? 
we have to look to the bigger story. So the bigger story, as it, as it relates to this first sorrow, Jesus is the true Israel, and all nations, Jew and Gentile, will be blessed through him. So at the end of this, uh, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. That's from Hosea chapter 11. Um, now, if you go back and actually read this verse in its context, it's going to seem strange. So let's go ahead and do that and get the weirdness out of the way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Well, that doesn't sound a whole lot like Jesus, does it? So we might be tempted to think Matthew's just kind of grabbing random quotes from the Old Testament, pulling them out of context, and then hammering those square pegs into the round hole of Jesus' story. But I think he's saying something deeper because he recognizes that God is ultimately the author of all of Scripture. So in, in Luke 24, Jesus says that all of the Old Testament is ultimately about him. Some parts, like we saw at the beginning of, of Matthew 2, um, the quote where it talks about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, are, are specific uh, predictions from the Old Testament, that one from Micah 5.2, that tell us specific details about Jesus' life. Again, born in Bethlehem. Later on, um, we find out that he grew up uh, in, in Galilee. There are other, lots of other details. But there are other parts of the Old Testament, kind of like how lambs were sacrificed for sins, that are their word pictures that preview what Jesus is coming, what the Messiah's coming would mean. For example, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. So I think this quote from Hosea is the second way of using the Old Testament to talk about Jesus. Does that make sense? So let me put in plain language what I think Matthew is trying to say here. I think he's saying Jesus is the true Israel. He's what Israel was always supposed to be. Where Israel failed in the Old Testament, Jesus now succeeds. So in the past, like we saw in Hosea, for the most part, God's promised blessings didn't flow to Israel or to the nations because of their lack of trust and obedience. But now we see that Jesus did perfectly trust and obey his father. So as a result, all of God's promised blessings flow to Israel and to the world through Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all God's promises find their yes in him. So despite our unfaithfulness, uh, despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite everyone's unfaithfulness, Jesus came as our true Israel. He is our representative to live the life that we should have lived to die the death that we should have died. He is the only bridge through which God's promised gifts come to us. Through him, we can know God and experience the true joy that transcends our circumstances, solid peace that endures in the face of chaos, and bottomless love that satisfies our deepest longings. Let's jump back to our main idea and keep tracking with the text. So if you're in Christ... You're not alone in your sorrow, and your sorrow is not the end of the story. 
Your sorrows are part of a bigger story of how God, through Jesus Christ, keeps his promises to do us good. Sorrow number two, the slaughter of infants. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod discovers that his plan to find and murder this would-be rival king has failed. The Magi are gone, never having reported back to him, so he flies into a murderous rage. And looking back on the timing of when the Magi uh, said the so-called king of the Jews had been born, Herod hatches an even more brutal plan. Not only is he going to kill his rival, he's going to make darn sure that it happens by killing any male in Bethlehem anywhere close to the age of the child. His thinking is maybe kind of like this. So the Magi thought the boy would be about two months old. Okay, fine. We'll do two years old just to make sure that we got him. So his thugs go do just that. They murder somewhere around 10 to 30 babies and little boys. Every male child under two in the small village of Bethlehem in the area nearby. Matthew tells us that this fulfills a prophecy from Jeremiah 31 about Rachel weeping for her children. So, what you're saying, God, is all of that happened just so that Jesus can fulfill a prophecy? The moms and dads of all these murdered boys in Bethlehem are supposed to be comforted by that? I mean, surely among those families, there were some godly moms and dads who were hoping for Messiah to come, who were waiting for God to rescue them from this evil empire and this wicked king that was over them, right? Where was God when all this took place? What was he doing? I mean, God could have sent legions of the army of angels to, to wipe them out, right? But, but he didn't. Why my village? Why my child? Have you ever been there as a parent or as a spouse, as a brother or a sister or as a friend? Lord, we prayed for you to protect this dear one. We prayed for long life. We prayed for your blessing. Uh, We prayed uh, for healing, but it didn't happen. Or even, Lord, if it's possible, let me take their place instead. And there's nothing but silence. On November 3rd, 2015, at Winter Park Hospital, that's where Aaron, Ashley, and I were. Um, And we're not the only ones in this church to lose a child or to lose a family member or to lose a close friend. Maybe Christmas time, uh, maybe this passage dredges up painful memories for you like it does for me. Your little girl's absence feels so thick at times that you can almost touch it. 
you have ways of, of keeping track of time that, that, that you don't tell anybody else. Oh, this would be the third Christmas that we'd be having with her. She'd be sitting right over there squirming in her seat or else be in childcare. Um, you wonder if other people will also remember this person who still means so much to you. And at a time of year that ought to resound with joy and hope feels at times painful and lonely. How could this bigger story possibly offer something here? I want to answer that question. But first, I think we need to consider a second situation that's in play in this passage. And then hopefully, we'll be able to show from the passage how Jesus' fulfillment of the scriptures answers both. So that second situation is uh, in play as Herod is murdering these, these kids is persecution. Just like Herod persecuted Bethlehem for housing the Messiah at his birth, so now the world persecutes the church for housing the Messiah after his resurrection. Uh, This week, around 100 Chinese Christians were arrested by Chinese police. They are members, deacons, elders, even the senior pastor and his wife of Early Rain Covenant Church in southwest China. Now, this is a great house church that even some of our OGC missionary families personally partner with. Um, And most of these 100 people, as of yesterday when I was checking it, remain in police custody or are under house arrest. Uh, They're facing pressure either to A, renounce their church as an evil cult and promise never to participate in it again, or B, uh, face greater consequences. And it's not just the adults who are suffering. Many of those who are arrested are parents whose children are staying with other members of the church, unsure of when or even whether mom and dad will come back. In America, we're insulated from a lot of this, um, but, but this is the reality for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the planet and across history. It's the normal Christian experience for most Christians across space and across time. And to whatever degree persecution has not yet come to our doorstep in the United States, given enough time, it eventually will. So what do we say to all this suffering? Why doesn't God rescue these folks out of persecution? Why does God let so many people near and dear to us die? A quick disclaimer, what I'm about to share might not feel intellectually like the most satisfying answer to your question. Why did God allow terrible things to happen in your own life? Um, But I think it's what we deeply need. Um, I remember a conversation with Rodney Walton uh, about his daughter Annabelle's death. Rodney told me that it became something of an obsession for a while that he discovered the exact cause of why she passed away. Um, And I felt a similar pull about my daughter Evie's death. We both have come to realize, uh, and Rodney was very helpful for me in this, I think, we both come to realize that knowing the cause of death was only an attempt to stave off the powerlessness that we felt in losing our little ones. So, doctor, give me an answer makes it feel like you can actually do something when you can't. Um... And there have been other tragedies uh, in, in my life when I've done something similar to God. I said, God, you say you want to do good to me. Explain how this counts as doing good. 
but I found that sometimes these questions are, are a way of raging against my smallness and powerlessness because we live in a world that is still very much broken and we can't fix it. I do think that there are really good ways to discuss this question. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow evil things to happen? Um, and I, if you're interested in talking about that, I'd be happy to talk with you. In fact, I would actually, I, I cannot highly enough recommend talking to a guy like Joe Torres um, about something like this. He just does a tremendous job of, of talking about these things in a loving, truthful way. Um, but I think that's not where Matthew is going in this passage. Um, so instead of directly answering our questions, I think Matthew points us to a bigger story of the relationship between God and his people. So let's look to that bigger story. So bigger story for this sorrow number two is the exile is still ongoing, but in Jesus it is coming to an end. So this time Matthew quotes Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. Uh, in original context for what was going on there, Israel's lack of trust and obedience to God has finally caught up with them. They've been conquered by foreign empires and are being carried off into captivity, exiled from the land that God promised to them. Ramah was a city that served as a staging area for the captives. So they'd be sent to Ramah first, and then from there sent all over the Babylonian Empire. Rachel, she was the matriarch of the tribes of Benjamin and then Ephraim and Manasseh, sons of Joseph. She represents all the mothers who are weeping as their sons and daughters are either dead or carried off to a foreign land, never to be seen again. Again, I think Matthew's making a point about the bigger story. Why? So this stuff in Jeremiah is, you think, like a little after 600 B.C. So a couple of decades after that, around 538 B.C., some groups of exiles started to return to Jerusalem uh, and the land of Judah, which is what we read about in the Old Testament books of Nehemiah and Ezra. As a result, though, a lot of people concluded that the exile was over. Uh, They'd rebuilt Jerusalem, they'd rebuilt the temple, they'd reinstated the sacrificial system. Yeah, sure, they'd ended up with a non-Israelite king and an evil Roman uh, empire that was overlord for them and extorting them. But hey, we're back, baby. Um, Matthew's point is that the exile isn't over. Gentile thugs were still killing their people and they had no earthly recourse because those thugs were their government. And this concept of exile, it's not just a Jewish thing. Because of the sin of Adam, all of us, whatever our ethnicity, are part of a much greater exile, not just from a geographical region, but from the very presence of God. But God promised someday to end both exiles. So let's start with Israel's exile. Let's listen to these verses from the context in Jeremiah 31. We'll start with the one that that Matthew quotes. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. 
I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. God is promising to bring the people of Israel back from the exile. But also, not just Israel, all nations. So consider this pretty incredible statement God makes about the Gentiles in connection with Israel's return from exile. This is Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God promised to bring Israel back from exile and he also promised to bring people from every tongue, tribe, and nation back to eg- from exile. So how does he do it? How does he, how does he keep those promises he kept, kept those promises by exiling his, his one and only son in our place. So remember, on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In some sense, Jesus was exiled, shut out from his father's love and delight into the exile of his father's wrath. The result is that anyone, Jew or Gentile, you or me, can freely enter God's presence. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your ground for hope. God has declared your exile complete. He's forgiven your sin and has welcomed you back into his family and into his very presence. And yet, the story is a little more nuanced than that. Yes, Jesus has bought our tickets home from exile. More and more people are coming to know God in Christ. And in the Christian life, we can grow more and more in knowing and enjoying God. But, but death still happens. Divorce still happens. Persecution still happens. Poverty still happens. What gives? The way the New Testament describes it, the the exile is already ending, but not yet totally ended. And the return is already underway but not yet complete. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians facing persecution and suffering for their faith, refers to them as sojourners and exiles and elect exiles of the dispersion. 